Coming to you from the front lines of America's fight for freedom, it's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. What this world needs is a few more red dicks. So people ain't afraid to take a stand. What this world needs is a little more respect for the Lord and the law and the working man. We could use a little peace and satisfaction Some good people up front to take the lead A little less talk and a little more action And a few more rednecks is what we need Coming back at you from the capital city of the free state of Florida It is Brett and Matt Doster Helping to wake the woke with truth, the constitution, and a little redneck common sense Matt? We got a new presidential preference primary going tomorrow in South Carolina. What do you think? Who's going to win? Uh, big question. I'm going to go out on a limb and say Donald Trump. <laughs> As you should. I've got three polls in front of me. Uh, one from the Trafalgar Group, February 13th through 15th. Uh, another one from Emerson College, which, by the way, in my opinion, is a faulty poll from my experience over the years. Uh, but nonetheless, they go out there and do, do these polls. Again, that's my opinion. But uh, February 14th through 16th, they did a poll. And then February 15th through 18th, Suffolk University did a poll. Trump is leading by 20-plus points in every poll. The biggest lead he has and out of the three is 30-plus. I think it's a foregone conclusion that he's probably going to win tomorrow. Yeah, the, uh, the contest is um, very well-defined, and it's interesting to – to just see what is kind of an exercise in, in America uh, and in our voting system. I mean, there's people that are still in the race that that believe they have a reason to be in the race, that mm-hmm. have uh, a message that they want to deliver. And uh, you and I are in the political business. We see value in that. We would never tell somebody, hey, you can't run or you've got to drop out at a certain point or anything like that. Uh, but it is interesting just in terms of the public consciousness everybody's focused on Biden Trump everybody believes that's what's going to happen and you know it doesn't seem like there's any exception with the voters of South Carolina of course these are also two candidates where um not only is the foregone conclusion seems you know very much uh something that everyone is agreed on but also the wild card factors are maybe bigger with these two um presumptive nominees more so than any other candidates we've seen before so I've never been a big fan of Nikki Haley's, and I have uh, criticized her frequently on our show. Uh, I have given her some points for being a good debater, and I certainly give her the nod for having the guts to stay in the race this far. I'm beginning to doubt, though, whether this has been a good new move for her to stay in all the way through her home state of South Carolina. Uh, back in 2018, just to educate our audience a little bit, <clears throat> there were similar comments about John Kasich, who was from Ohio, staying in all the way to Ohio because he was losing so badly everywhere. And he um, decided to stay in, but he won the state of Ohio. I mean, he was definitely the favorite son. Um, I don't know that Nikki is uh, going to be doing herself any favors by staying in through her own home state and being shellacked tomorrow. South Carolina, I mean, South Carolina is a different state. It's an early primary state. Now, we've been in South Carolina for some political work in the past. You spent quite a bit of time in South Carolina. Oh, yeah. We both went to college there. Mm-hmm. Uh, what's different from South Carolina voters than, you know, New Hampshire, Nevada, Iowa voters, some of these other early primary states? Well, I think that, you know, that's a great question. I, I think one of the things that you have to look about in the, look at in the Deep South 
is uh, it's more ideological. It's uh, definitely South Carolina is part of the old traditional Bible Belt, and they certainly vote more based on what they believe rather than personality. Uh, I, I, I did some campaigning in Ohio as well. I think Ohio does tend to favor and get behind favorite sons. It's still a state that does that. They have a very rich presidential heritage there. But in South Carolina, it really is more about what you stand for and what you believe. I think Nikki Haley would have done better there if she had not uh, sort of traded her long-term strategy for a short-term strategy of picking up all of these uh, sort of woke corporate insider uh, supporters. And uh, now people have just abandoned her. Now you have Lindsey Graham, the U.S. senator there, who's not exactly a you know, rock-ribbed conservative, but Tim Scott, the other U.S. senator there, and Governor Henry McMaster all supporting Donald Trump for president. So I just don't see Nikki Haley doing well. Politics is multidimensional. I mean, you have the ideological side, you have the belief side, you have you know who I am, all that, and then you have the tactics that go along with it. I, I think Nikki Haley got into a situation where she thought she could basically get into the number two position and take some of that institutional support away from some of the other other people. But you're exactly right. Every time you take uh, a lane, you also run the risk of marginalizing marginalizing yourself in a different lane, which I think is exactly what you're referring to. She took on some advantages that maybe helped her in Iowa and New Hampshire, but but is not helping her now. So pop quiz, Matt, because we often sort of sit here and bandy about the ignorance of voters. We talk about that. We, we say, hey, are people really making this uh, evaluations or are they really keeping score on presidential candidates based on what they should be based on the roles and responsibilities they have constitutionally. So, pop quiz, do you know what a president actually is charged with doing as part of his responsibilities in the Constitution? This is where you're just trying to make me look bad. Because That's correct. I don't know the answer to what. I'm trying to be entertaining. Whatever you've uh, prescripted. Uh, yeah, like most Americans, I probably have the basic um, assumption like commander in chief of the armed forces that's a good um, one um you know veto legislation if you think it needs to be vetoed or sign the bills correct one. yep uh appoint people to the cabinet mm-hmm. judges yep that's cetera, a good one yep. other other positions that are appointed presidential appointees mm-hmm. um decorate the oval office i don't <laughs> i don't know what else <laughs> Right, exactly. I think that is supposedly, in the more traditional sense, supposed to fall under the purview of the First Lady. But I'll give you a few other ones. Make treaties with the approval of the Senate. Um, Enforce the laws that Congress passes. That'll be the day. Oh, yeah, because our current president is not doing that, particularly with the border. Call out troops to protect our nation against attack. Um, Get this, entertain foreign guests appoint ambassadors, and to grant pardons. These are things that are constitutionally outlined as responsibilities for the president. But I do think over time, let's face it, I think that people think of the president as the commander-in-chief and also the voice for all the people in unity as opposed to just one district or one state in the country, but someone who's supposed to be representing the interests of the country as a whole in his administration of the laws that Congress passes. Washington, D.C. is a big um, – they're in love with Congress. 
and they a lot of the people that live there they always want to emphasize the fact that Congress should be like the central branch of government. I would say that Congress is in love with themselves. I, I would agree with that. Um, there is a tug of war, right, between the sort of the primacy of the three branches of government. Which one is is really the most important? Uh, in the last what seventy five years, there's been a lot of attention paid on activist courts yep. and you know that that get involved in sort of discovering laws buried in the phrases of various constitutional amendments and that sort of thing. Yep. Um, but there is this tug of war back and forth between Congress and the White House, like which should be really the dominant branch? Should there be a dominant branch? I mean, I guess I would argue that the basic notion of separation of powers is that there shouldn't be. There shouldn't, you know, they should all kind of do their job. Um, but I have seen, uh, I, I remember when George W. Bush was president, there were some articles about how they made a concerted effort to almost reassert or reestablish some of the uh, authorities of the White House. And it's one of those things, What, however the structure shapes out, you're at the mercy of whoever's in that office at the time. Well, I'm telling you why I'm asking you this and why I'm sort of giving this little constitutional lesson. And that is because I think this is where Donald Trump is beating Nikki Haley. Nikki Haley has been an ambassador to the UN, but other than that, uh, and other than having some very feisty appearances in in debates, I don't think that she has necessarily settled into that role in people's minds of being this really strong commander in chief, this really strong defender of American shores and the American border, as Trump has. And so, if you see uh, Trump's polling numbers uh, sort of peeled back and look at what people trust him to do more. They trust him to be someone who is going to be a stalwart defender of American security, of, of the American border. And I think that's why it's not even a question that he's going to win. Now, um, it'll be interesting to see what happens. It'll be interesting to see if she's able to sort of pull off any kind of upsets. We're actually, in the next segment, going to have Ryan Binkley on, who's a minor party candidate. Uh, well, Republican. Well, I apologize. Yeah, Republican. He's a more minor candidate because he did finish second, by the way, in Nevada. He, he uh, And he did well in Iowa, relatively speaking. Relatively look, speaking. Look at the list. In, what, yeah. fourth or fifth, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. So, But anyway, in the next segment, we'll be talking to Ryan, and we'll be asking him some questions about uh, his own perspective and selling himself as being the commander-in-chief because I think that that's how people think of the president mainly as, as commander-in-chief. Is he protecting America and Americans abroad. This is where Trump is winning, I think, overwhelmingly. But stick with us as we get into this next subject or next segment and begin talking with a true presidential candidate about the way that that office is perceived and who is best set to represent you, the voice in the White House. Never fear. Matt and Brett are here. Or at least they will be. America in View will be right back. Freeing the woke from their liberal chains. It's Matt and Brent Doster with America in View. All right, we're back for segment two with Ryan Binkley, who is a presidential candidate. A lot of people don't necessarily, if you haven't been following the entire scope of the presidential contest, you may not have heard a lot about Ryan. But Ryan did uh, perform well out in Nevada. He came in second, and Ryan is actually campaigning in the state of South Carolina today in advance of the primary there tomorrow. Ryan, welcome to the show. Well, thank you. It's great to be with you this morning. And uh, I actually I just flew in from South Carolina last night, so we're back home in Texas uh, for a couple of days. And uh, so it's good to be home, though. It's been a long time since I've been here. So you got to tell us really quickly, Matt and I both uh, attended college at the Citadel uh, down in Charleston back in the 90s. 
So I'm not trying to put you on the spot to say that Charleston's your favorite city, but what did you like most about campaigning in South Carolina? Well, you know, wow. It, you know, Charleston is one of the prettiest cities I've been to. So, you know, I, I took my golf clubs because I was hoping to get a good round in, but we never made that happen. Love the golf at Keel Island. Didn't get a chance to do that this time. But uh, we, uh, I love Charleston. Love that old town. And just love the people. You know, it's so amazing just meet, meeting the people there. We had some great meetings. We met with a lot of business leaders and pastors as well uh, this week. And so just the people and uh, that beautiful town of Charleston is hard to pass up. Ryan, tell us a little bit about your campaign. And uh, we're watching from a distance in Iowa. You were really on the ground in Iowa. So many people these days, they think about politics as something that happens on the Internet or on TV. But you really did it. And have done it the old-fashioned way. You're out meeting with people. You, you did 99 counties in Iowa. You've done similar things in the other states. Tell us about that experience for you and what you're hearing when you're talking to people. Well, thank you. You know, we did. We kind of took the route that we needed to do well in Iowa. You know, we're not a, I'm not a billionaire and I'm not a lifelong politician. So that without a brand name recognition or a lot of money to get it, you know, we knew we had to do well there. You know, I would say this. We, we did better than most expected. We hoped to do a little bit better. But we went from 15th place where we started to 5th place. And then Vivek and uh, DeSantis dropped out real shortly thereafter. We felt called to stay in. You know, we did about, my goodness, uh, 99 counties, but over 250 meetings. And so we had town halls, meet and greets everywhere. This is kind of what I saw. You know, after meeting with everybody, the Republican Party kind of split. Most people are still galvanized behind Trump for many reasons. Mm -hmm. A lot of the injustice is happening to him. That's, that's clear. But most people, there's a lot of people, even a lot of the hard Trump uh, supporters, MAGA supporters, know that something's missing in America. Something's broken in our financial system, and something's missing in the leadership and the culture of our country, but they can't put their finger on it. And as I've talked to so many people, I, I just, you know, this is why I'm running. If you kind of feel that way, this is what our campaign's been about. I'm not an anti-Trumper at all. In fact, I support him both times, would again. I, I think that the issue I'm speaking to, though, is we've been on a 30-year cycle of deficit spending. It's really breaking our country financially. I'm a CEO of an investment bank, so my background is this. We have to see it, arrest it, save it for the next generation, save the dollar. I've been talking about this because Republicans are horrible at this as well. And then also culturally, you know, we are broken. You know, it's the goal of every party to see the other party fail. I mean, when's the last time we had a president ascend or transcend their party? We haven't had that since Ronald Reagan. It's time that we, we quit the divisiveness and we start moving higher. That's what my campaign's about. So if you're, if you're looking at all this and you're hearing this and you're like, hey, I've, I've, I see all the candidates. Is this all there is? That's what our campaign's about. Check it out. And I think there's some things you may like. Ryan, there's so many aspects about your message that is so refreshing. And I do think that people are generally frustrated. Look, our audience is frustrated. I, you know, Matt and I personally feel it right now when you see inflation and then massive overspending, which I do think people have accurately said Republicans and Democrats are both responsible for. But I want to talk about you for a minute personally. We all know, uh, at least the average person knows, that running for president is no small thing. It's a big business. It's a big endeavor. Uh, what was it that finally just turned a switch on in your life and said, hey, man, I'm going to do this thing? Well, you know, I never really um, had thoughts about running for, for office most of my life at all. Uh, it first came to me really in a dream from the Lord about 2015. And so, it, and then it kept coming. I wondered, God, was that pizza? Are you sure? And then it just kept coming. And then messages for our country started coming to my heart. But I've watched this. So I've watched economically for 30 years. I used to wonder, how come great leaders don't run? I used to look at Jamie Dimon and all these other guys are great business leaders back 20 years ago. Even I was, How come they don't run for office? Well, now I know why they don't run. It's a swamp. It's corrupt. It is so hard. I mean, there are so many systems set up against you, and there's, there's, there's trouble out there, even if you've got great ideas. And so you better feel called 
I, I felt called to. So the only reason I can explain it, I mean, I'm like I said, I, I'm blessed financially, but not a billionaire. We put a lot of our liquid net worth in it, uh, this campaign. Uh, we have 82,000 donors, but we threw it all on the table because we felt called to. That's the only reason uh, anybody would do in it or stay in it. You know, a lot of people ask me, Ryan, why are you still in it? There's no clear path. Well, the only reason is I still feel like God is speaking to me saying, hey, keep getting this message out a little bit longer. It's not time yet. And the reason is, is because uh, there's something that, that everybody's still saying that they're missing. I mean, we still don't have a president saying this, I'm going to rescue the dollar, or presidential candidate, I'm going to balance the budget. We're not, we're, we're not going to default on the debt. You know, we've got $34 trillion in debt and climbing. You know, so we do financial forecasting. If we did a financial forecasting of our country, it, it's, it, it's, not, it's not solvent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's not going to be solvent. So, you know, we're in trouble, and nobody's really talking about this. So I'm just over here like this person in the wilderness shouting, listen, do you see this, what's happening? Because if we don't do this, our kids, the next generation, is going to be set up, I think, for the biggest financial failure since the Great Depression, and we are, we're on the cusp of it. Ryan, uh, I know you've talked a lot about this. I think you've said there's been a lot of focus on growth, but not necessarily as much focus on exactly what you're saying, just fiscal responsibility, balancing the budget. I think the answer of how to balance the budget is simple, right? You, you can't spend more than you take in. But how do you do that? How, mechanically, what, what's the policy path to get there in, I think you said, seven years to get the deficit down to zero? Well, first of all, you have to wake up the country that the consequences of our current path are devastating. So you have to look into the camera of America. You really need the bully pulpit of the presidency of the United States. You really have to have that, I think, position to talk to America authentically, bring some economists on board, show them where we're headed. You know, like goodness, if you were really sick, wouldn't you want a doctor telling you the real news? And so what we don't have is anybody telling us the real news. you got to tell them the consequences of our current actions, where we're headed. You know, we've got politicians running our, our bank accounts, not business leaders. And so they're buying votes is what they're doing. And so you got to be honest with America and then just make some realistic changes. The biggest change that we can make right away is the, is the monopolistic systems in healthcare. It's four and a half times as big as our military and government spending. It's filled with monopolies from big pharma to insurance to the providers themselves, pharmacy benefit managers as well. There's, there's four layers of systems that we've looked at. You've got you to make it transparent, price competitive. I think there's 30 or 40% or more waste in the system. And it needs to be, a, a, I call it a Republican-led healthcare system that's price competitive, price transparent. And we don't have that today. And I think when we do that alone, that'll be a great start. And then there's all the other non-defense discretionary spending, about 20% of our budget. It just needs to be bottom line cleaned up about 10 or 20% and we can get there. So, Ryan, I'm going to ask you this. Uh, first of all, number one, thank you for your message. It's the right message. is what people need to hear. Matt and I were just talking in the first segment about the responsibilities of the president. One of those primary responsibilities is to be the commander-in-chief and in charge of national security. And, uh, you know, some people say, oh, China's our biggest threat. Sometimes people say Russia's our biggest threat. I personally believe our biggest threat is our crushing national debt right now. But when you're out talking, when you're giving them the message you just gave us and our audience here, and you're in Iowa and and you're in South Carolina, do people's eyes just glaze over when you start talking about the trillions and billions of waste? Or do they really seem to have a sense of connection and are grasping onto your message? It's about a third that grasp it, maybe half. And the reason is, is because half of the population of America is doing okay. And the reason they're doing okay is because if you own a house or stock portfolio, your, your net worth is actually going up in this environment. Because if you own an inflationary asset and we have hyperinflation, well, goodness, you're doing okay. You're looking at your house going, well, honey, our house is worth three times as much as worth five years ago, so I guess we're okay. 
At the end of the day, though, most 40% of America doesn't own a house. Mm-hmm. The wealth gap is getting bigger and bigger. So everybody, we have 50% of people under 25 living with their parents now. So here's some data. That's, the, that's really close to the way it was right before the Great Depression. The other thing that's a really alarming number is the M1 money supply in our nation, which is just a cash available to you and I, everybody in America, and maybe up to $100,000 in the illiquid asset. That's at an all-time low since the Great Depression. So we haven't been this low in 74 years. So we're here we are going, what are we doing when not speaking to these issues? And, and you're talking about international policy and how do we lead across the world. I think this, our greatest threat is our division and the dollar. Because if, we're, if we unite on this thing, get strong financially, we'll lead across the world. China will pay attention to us when the dollar's strong. When it's not, they're creating their own currency. So at the end of the day, we're lost in war many times because of financial failure. You look at when Putin moves in on Ukraine. Look at the last two times. We struggled in 2007 and 8. He moves in in 2009 on Crimea. We get a weak leader, a weak dollar. Same thing happened here this time. Joe Biden runs out of Afghanistan. The economy's weak. He jumps in. Weak leader, weak economy. He jumps in again. So there's a pattern here. It's not just the fact that there's a weak leader. When you have a weak economy, you will not lead across the world. And I'm trying to communicate that to everybody. A lot of people are stuck on Trump. You see the injustice, Ryan. Get behind it now and listen. I am, I do see it. I want President Trump to know that. I do see it. I understand it. There's two things happening here. There's injustice against him, and then there's injustice against 150 million Americans as well that are truly struggling, and I'm fighting for both. Ryan Binkley, presidential candidate. Quickly, Ryan, love your message. Tell people how they can get involved. What's your website? Binkley2024.com. Just check us out a little bit. Go there. Share some of this news. You know, We have Instagram, Facebook. Just tell people, hey, I heard a message that's different, that's unique. I appreciate you guys having me out here today. Really, and, and I'm telling America to believe again. Have faith. We can do some great things and we do it together. Ryan, thank you so much for joining us. You're the man. We'll have you back on. Take care. I look forward to it. Take care. Bye-bye. On the front lines fighting the insanity of the woke, America in View will be right back. Counseling the woke back to freedom and rational thought. It's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. Well, Matt, I thought that that was an interesting segment with Ryan Binkley, presidential candidate, who's running, let's just call it a dark horse, long shot campaign. But I liked his message. Yeah, he speaks well. He's got uh, he's got background. He's got a lot of experience, and you know, for whatever reason hasn't caught on in the public consciousness as much as I'm sure he would like to, but it's always good. That's what politics is all about. There's no limits on who can run and everybody gets in there. They have their message. They mix it up and they see what happens. Well, we have another esteemed guest in studio today, uh, someone who I consider to be a friend, uh, someone who in many ways has been a mentor and uh, also someone who is, uh, I think, a, a dynamo in the Florida State House of Representatives and hopefully one day will be either statewide or who knows, even a federal candidate. Representative Toby Overdorf uh, is with us this morning. He is the vice chair of the Judiciary Committee and the chairman of the Joint Administrative Procedures Committee. Toby, welcome to the show today. Thank you very much. I'm I'm grateful that uh, they don't limit who can run. (laughs) (laughs) Well, let me tell you something. We have uh, been improved in the state with your uh, presence and with your leadership. You've got quite a few bills going this uh, session, and we only have about two weeks left to go. What are you kind of feeling about the outlook right now? Are you feeling like it's going to be a successful session or one that you might look back on and say, ah, we didn't get a whole lot accomplished? You know, it's already a real successful session. Um, The Speaker blessed me in uh, being able to co-prime House Bill 3 
which was uh, all about parental controls and looking at that for uh, pornographic websites. Mm-hmm. And it, uh, looks like, so it looks like that's going to go now, right? It, uh, we passed it off the floor yesterday, combined House Bill 1 and House Bill 3. It's off to the governor's desk, and uh, you know, we'll see what happens from there. Um, we, most, most reps or all reps have seven bill slots um, that they're allowed to file, and this year we had 15. So um, yeah. I've, uh, I've been very blessed of being able to carry a lot of stuff, and uh, with a lot of bills, that means uh, that my percentages are high for getting stuff across the finish line, and we're rolling along. Hey, define for me real quick, Matt, and then I, I know you got a question for, for uh, Toby, Representative Overdorf. What was the static on HB1, HB3? I mean, why were people pushing back on this thing? Because it seemed like a great idea that parents mm-hmm. wanted. And mm-hmm. then you got all this pushback uh, inside the legislature. What, what was that all about? Well, you know, it's a, it's a free state of Florida. And so people are really thinking about their freedoms, their freedom of expression. Their, this, is this uh, constitutional? Is it not constitutional? So we were. I think that's the main pushback here. We're in, we're basically in uncharted territory, and frankly, it's a bill that I wish we never had to do. Hmm. But but the reality is, in today's times, with uh, with parents the way they are, with children the way they are, parents don't want to necessarily take that personal responsibility to make sure um, of their of their child's future. And so, unfortunately, and I, and I hate this, but the legislature needs to, to step in sometimes in these areas. So what we're doing in this is we're stepping in and um, providing some guide rails. And it's really, Tyler Soroy did an incredible job in explaining the bill. It's really about the addictive side of these social media platforms. Mm. It's not about any one platform in any way, shape, or form. And they were trying to put us into a box for that, but it's really about the addictive nature. So potentially the social media platforms will actually adjust and, uh, and and change their algorithms so that, in fact, they would have an opportunity to continue to, to work with, with kids. But right now, the way it's set and the way the algorithms are, it goes right at the heart of uh, addictive personalities, unfortunately. And it seems like every <clears throat> industry has uh, can have tendencies in that direction, right? Whether it's potato chips or social media, there always seems like there's some theories that there's an addictive thing that's built into that, right? Absolutely. So let's talk a little bit. Scientific environmental issues get a lot of attention these days. A lot of people talk without a lot of firsthand knowledge about these topics. That's not the case for you. You you are a scientist in your own right. You have a lot of expertise on environmental, water quality issues, and so on. He, he may be, by the way, I don't know if, the, maybe you've done the background. You may be the only marine biologist ever to serve in the state house. Is that correct? I don't I don't know about that, but I'm currently the only biologist in, in the legislature. Yeah. So yeah, of yeah, all yeah, 160, yeah. there's no other biologist. Yeah. Sorry, Matt, I didn't mm-hmm. mean yeah, to interrupt Yeah, no, it's a great point. And I think that's the theme of the citizen legislatures. You're hoping that people that get elected come with various mm-hmm. life experiences and various expertise that they can that they can bring to the policy debates. Tell us a little bit about that bill that you were telling us about, uh, 789 Environmental Management. So environmental management is really looking at some uh, Supreme Court cases that came came about. In a trucking case, this gentleman uh, unfortunately was injured when he was cleaning up a battery acid spill. An enterprising tort attorney went and got personal injury damages under a statute that was meant for water quality assurance. Mm-hmm. And so this whole um, statute that was set up to basically make sure people get permits to clean up things, People get permits to do brownfield work, other things like that. They were able to sue for personal injury because in the definition of damages, it actually it, it cited some a words called all damages. Well, the the court basically expanded their review and looked at looked at this, and it was kind of a you know, judicial activism, no doubt about it. Where they used Webster's dictionary to find what all was, <laughs> and they then also used um, Black's law dictionary to define damages instead of looking back at the legislative intent. 
legislative intent was really clear. It was natural resources, and frankly, the original definition of damages specifically excluded human beings. Interesting. Yeah. So. Isn't that a sad commentary on what you have to do as a legislature? It's almost like it's a two-step or multi-step process. You pass laws, and then you have to pass more laws about those laws based on what people try to the loopholes that people try to exploit. And we, we have to. And what's happened here is there was a definition in 1991 that didn't catch up to the statute associated with what we're working on. And so that's where now we're having to tie it all back together again because, again, a very smart and enterprising attorney decided to get down this road. And, and they did well for his client. His client ended up with $5.3 million through the statute. But it's a statute that, uh, frankly, has no bearing to have personal injury associated with it. And so now we have to clarify that and move on. And you know, it's, it's interesting as you get into this, there's other statutes, and I know we're going to talk about something here in a minute, but it deals with litigation financing. And right now there's a statute on the books on 877 that basically looks at uh, champerty, you know, champerty being the practice of throwing money into the legal system and in an illegal way. Well, the statute is written so poorly that nobody has actually ever been prosecuted on it except for one time we worked with a gentleman called William Large. And we went through and analyzed everything associated with that particular statute, excuse me. And again, there was nothing associated with a prosecution of it, even though we have it on the books. And even though the litigation financing companies out there know that this is an unenforced statute that's sitting there. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's been interesting to see, you know, there, there's always good trial lawyers and there's bad trial lawyers. We talk a lot about the bad trial lawyers mm-hmm. because I feel like they spoil it for everyone else, right? I mean, when you get ready to go to trial, if you are in trial, you want a good trial attorney. Sure. But the ones that are exploiting these kind of like gray, hazy loopholes are the ones who are messing it up for everyone, really. Well, and you know, I'll go both ways on that because you mm-hmm. can say that they're they're exploiting it, but they're also finding you know advantages for their clients, and they're doing they're doing what they you know what they believe is the right thing to do. Um, obviously, in the in the Florida House, you not only have Republicans and Democrats, but you have you know the the tort attorneys and the tort reform uh, mm-hmm. folks that are out mm-hmm. there, and mm-hmm. so there's it's a it's this huge balance that goes back and forth and. Uh, it's a battle that that will continue, and uh, we'll we'll see what happens here over the next couple of years. But we're going we're going hard now. Let's shift uh, <laughs> let's shift gears for a second, uh, Toby, because we were just talking about presidential politics earlier mm-hmm. with Ryan Binkley and the failures of Joe Biden to secure the border. Uh, you know, one of the unfortunate uh, results or consequences of not enforcing the border has been a rapid rise in human trafficking, a rapid rise in fentanyl overdoses that's coming across the southern border. You have been a passionate opponent against human trafficking, and you've got a bill this year, the anti-human trafficking bill. Tell us a little bit about that and what you're trying to do with this. Well, the the bill this year basically looks at three elements. Number one is updating the uh, the telephone number. Believe it or not, we have to do that statutorily. Mm-hmm. That appears on all of our statewide human trafficking posters. So if you ever this, walk this into- This is the one that you call if you feel like you're stuck in human trafficking or in a- uh, You're either stuck in it or you or you see it. You have, a, you have observation it. with it. So if you walk into any rest uh, rest area and you, you go to the bathroom there, you'll see a poster that's about human trafficking. That's because of the original bill that we did six years ago. You mm-hmm. see that poster sitting right there. Well, we're updating those posters now, um, and the number that we had was going to a national hotline. They weren't really telling Florida what was going on all the time. So mm-hmm. the tips would come in very slowly. So we worked with the attorney general's office, got a new number, um, worked with FDLE. They've been great partners in all of this, and so now we have a – 
a uh, number that actually goes to Florida. Um, imagine that. Yeah. So um, then the other parts of it are we, we've looked at coercion of labor and making sure that when you have a government contract, you're not using coercion of labor and it actually has an affidavit you have to sign. Mm-hmm. What that does is by having that, and if there is anything on there, we can immediately do a search warrant. We can go in and we can actually um, hopefully release those folks from the labor trafficking side of this and gets us into further layers down below. So it's just these little tricks you start to learn about how do you break into these human trafficking rings. They are so hard to get into, but once you get in, it's amazing the string that unwinds from that. So we're talking with Representative Toby Overdorf today, talking about human trafficking, talking about, and I want to keep this going in the uh, next segment very, very briefly before we get to the next segment, Toby, before we get to the break. Uh, Just tell me this, uh, do we have any latest stats in how many people have been saved out of human trafficking rings at this point in Florida, or is that still developing? It's really still developing that way because, number one, the labor trafficking sometimes is miscategorized. Mm-hmm. Number two, you've got the sex trafficking side where we a lot of times we have witnesses that are now in protection. They don't want to come forward. There's no stats associated with that, but we're seeing an incredible rise in the arrests. So that means that the programs we're doing are working. Okay, good deal. So I think as we get ready to go into the break, uh, mm-hmm. what I'd like to do, Matt, is hold a Representative Overdorf here, and uh, let's get ready to talk about a couple of hot, controversial topics as we close out uh, this legislative session. Stick with us with Representative Toby Overdorf. Don't go anywhere. America in View will be right back. Making common sense cool again. It's Matt and Brett Doster with America in View. All right, finishing up today's show with Representative Toby Overdorf, who is a champion for freedom in the Florida State House of Representatives. Uh, We were just finishing up talking in the last segment about the human trafficking issue. And Toby, you've been such an advocate uh, for these people who may be trapped in human trafficking rings. It's a very, very sad result of our failed border policy that uh, we can blame Uh, on Joe Biden. Let me ask you this, as it relates to the politics of presidential campaigns, do you feel as you're talking to voters and concerned activists that the human trafficking issue resonates with people as being associated with the border or do they see it as something entirely different in Florida? Just curious. It's more and more associated with the border, no doubt Mm -hmm. about it, because now we're not only seeing the sex trafficking side of it, but we are seeing labor trafficking side. And uh, nobody wants to see a, a... there's several different uh, instances where we found um, mobile homes that have 18 people living in it, and they are stuck there. There's no way to get out, and they're working every day, and, and so it's a real issue that we're seeing more and more of. I think it's, a, it's one of those issues that is going to be becoming more prominent as we head towards November. Mm-hmm. Um, and frankly, President Trump had done an amazing job with human trafficking issues uh, he had the first ever human trafficking summit at the White House. I was a part of that. Um, got to be up there with uh, our attorney general and our lieutenant governor. I mean, just an amazing time up there. But that being said, I think it's something that it's going to be an emerging issue as we move ahead. And yes, I think people do associate it with the border. And not to dwell on the on the you know terrible details of this problem, but what what goes is it mostly um, psychological coercion that the bad guys are up to? Is it the fact that maybe people that are living in a mobile home, 18 people, they just don't know better? They don't have the language skills? What what are the psychological dynamics there that even allows this to flourish the way it is? They'll um, Typically, the traffickers will have something over them, whether it's um, a, a contact back home that they know where their family is and they know who the people are back home. 
They, so basically um, a threat to the family back home then. Most certainly, and it can be a monetary threat as well. They aren't going to get any money back home, which is the whole reason many of them came. Mm-hmm. Um, it could be that um, they are going to be uh, deported. They're going to take them, drop them off at the police station and deport them. There's so many different things in this. So these folks, unfortunately, live in fear constantly. They don't have the opportunity to, uh, to gain the American dream. They came here illegally in the first place, and now they're being, they're being held illegally as well. And so they don't really feel they have any rights. Um, and it's a, it's a never ending cycle, unfortunately. It's really sad how much it seems to have expanded or at least, you know, is alive and well. So thank you for your work on that. It's something that I know a lot of people really care about switching gears a little bit. One of your other pieces of legislation is a memorial on Mm -hmm. foreign polluters. And, uh, it goes after one of the bad guys that we all know about, which is China. Uh, tell us about that. What does this do? What does it say? Well, of course, with the Paris Accords, we were, we were supposed to, um, worldwide get to a place where we're lowering um, our carbon output. You know, carbon's obviously something we find in our atmosphere. It's, it's, a, it's a, a decent element because it keeps, um, keeps all our other gases in and all that type of stuff and keeps our, temp- our temperature regulated. But with more of it, um, there are, the theories are that it is going to increase um, global temperatures. Well, with that, they obviously put out this national or international uh, agreement that basically said, look, we're going to go ahead and we are going to uh, lower all these carbon levels. Well, um, the United States has led the world in lowering carbon levels and has led the world um, in, in doing all of these environmental issues. Guess what? Well, China and India have said, thanks so much. and um, So great you're doing that. Um, we're not doing a damn thing. And mm-hmm. so basically what's happened is we now are at a disadvantaged position um, because all of our companies are doing this. It costs money to do that, obviously. It's not, you know, quote, unquote, as, a, as efficient. Um, but it's it's better for the environment. So now China, India, et cetera, are just pumping out the gas, and we don't even expect them to hit their um, their peak until um, the latest stats were 2029. So we've already come back down um, to uh, the early 90s levels, and uh, and that's with an increasing population here in the United States as well. It seems uh, wildly crazy that we would subject ourselves to a standard that's so much higher than the rest of the industrialized world or what I would call the emerging <clears throat> industrialized world. Mm-hmm. I mean, clearly you have Russia, you have China, and you mentioned India as well. That wasn't really on my radar screen, but you're 100% right. Here's what seems to be ironic to me about all this, uh, just having a conversation, right, uh, is that we depend so much on China and Chinese slave labor mm-hmm. and cheap Chinese resources right. f- to fuel our own economy. We're holding ourselves to this huge standard. And then we see companies like Microsoft and Apple and others saying, well, we couldn't deliver the products for the amount of money that we're doing right now if we weren't using Chinese labor. Right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it just seems like we would be more aggressive about pursuing energy policies that would help bring the cost down here in the United States. Um, I mean, how can we get people to start focusing more on drilling here and doing the things here that need to be done or maybe even investing in nuclear energy? I know that's been a big topic in the legislature. Mm-hmm. Well, at least a small topic. In well, the you know, Brad, you know? the very first thing that has to happen is Joe Biden needs to retire. Yeah, there you go. Um, and we need to bring back a Republican to the White House. I mean, when we're energy independent, when uh, when Joe Biden took over and now we're in a position where, again, we're seeing gas prices fluctuate incredibly. And that mm-hmm. is your first marker. You get your, your energy costs down, everything else follows, and you have an incredible economy. But uh, for whatever reason, our Democrat friends um, in the White House want to hold us hostage uh, with the energy costs. And it, I mean, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to see 
higher energy costs mean higher um, higher prices for everything else. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. if we can go ahead and get that done, I think that's going to help. And also right now, we have to do you know some other things where we're looking at at companies themselves and the costs associated with that. I mean, when you have even you know, I do some federal contracts and things like that. You would be amazed at the uh, hoops we have to jump through for federal contracts. It's insane. All the different you know uh, things that you you have to do just to get out of your car and walk onto a federal site. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so there's some things that are practical, and uh, there are some things that are just way over the top. And so in order for us to compete, we have to look at these uh, these different items now. Have to be and and looking again also is are there areas for tort reform there? Are there areas that we can keep our workers safe, but at the same time, uh, we're we're trying to find some ways that uh, we can make ourselves more efficient at the same time. Yeah, see, this is why I love you because you start you start talking about things that I think are so critical. I'm I'm serious for the national and and this is really you know Florida has become a national leader because mm-hmm. people like you are beginning to lead on these conversations. But we've maintained for months now on this show we've talked about America pricing our own labor out of the market with all these regulations, sure. taxation fees, bureaucracy, minimum we, wage. Yeah. Where we just can't compete. Mm-hmm. We can't compete. So I mean, right now, what California is going to a $30 an hour minimum wage, I think it is. Yeah. And what's happening there, everything's going to automation. Yeah. So if I, if I have a store and I can do automation instead of paying some guy $30 to $30 an hour, I'm doing it. And mm-hmm. as a result, there goes a job out the door. So, I mean, you, you have to look at both sides of this. You know, there are some, some folks out there want us to keep increasing our minimum wage. Well, that just throws up inflation. That just throw and that drives down uh, the amount of jobs that are potentially available. Uh, we had a we had a bill this year looking at um, 16 and 17 year olds being able to work a little bit longer, and uh, you would have you would have thought it was the craziest thing in the world we were doing. Mm-hmm. And you know, here's an opportunity though because the the kids want to work. I mean, and we had kid after kid after kid that was coming in and showing he was working extra hours. At the same time, his his uh, grades were incredible. His opportunities in front of him were incredible. So I think there's uh, there's a lot of different sides of this issue. Yeah. I think Matt had a question for you about higher ed because that kind of bleeds right into the higher ed issue. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I and mean, we keep seeing this <laughs> emphasis on making higher ed work. It's mm-hmm. too pricey. There's not enough emphasis on, on skills and crafts and the sorts of things that people want to do. Maybe even just as you're, as you're saying, if somebody wants to work, being able to work, what's next for higher ed? How do we reform that? Well, it depends what you think higher ed is. So is higher ed um, being the opportunity to get skills, to go ahead and you know realize that, look, I'm not a college person, but I'm really smart. I can go ahead and I can get a trade. I can be out there welding. I can be a, a real craftsman uh, in whatever it may be, electrician. I don't care. And, uh, and now I'm making more money than that kid who's, uh, who's coming out of college uh, at first, and he's getting a $36,000 a year job. I'm a certified welder now, and my first job is a you know a seventy-eight thousand dollar a year job. Mm-hmm. So I mean, how how do you balance that? So your higher ed, I think, has to take into account the skills and the skills training. We're doing that in Indian River State College right now. Um, we have the first ever high school um, that was uh, kind of a, a state idea here, and now it's in Martin County where we're bringing kids through, getting them certified in, in welding and air conditioning and electrician um, and a whole bunch of other suites. We're also doing that at the college itself in Fort Pierce. Where again, we're we're doing all this training that has caught on um, statewide. Where now we're finally having that emphasis, not just on putting the kids into college, but also having them get that trade, get that um, that skill. And I think we we really need to be looking at that more so. Um, as far as the higher ed and the college stuff, we got to get woke wokeism out of our our, mm-hmm. our universities, mm-hmm. no doubt about it. And uh, you know, I'm 
Um, I've seen it, um, the DEI. Um, also, as a, my friend Dan Bongino calls it, DIE. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, it's, it's something that we need to be changing, no doubt about it. We had a great time today with Representative Toby Overdorf. Really quickly on the way out, what's your website address, Toby, for everybody to check you out? It's really easy, tobyoverdorf.com. That's why we make it easy for you. (laughs) All right, great day. Thank you so much. Another great show with America in View. Thanks for listening to America in View. For more information, go to americainview.com.